We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You know, it's 12.02 right now. If they want to fire me at 12.05, I'll go home and find something to do. I'll have a good day. Wire NBA podcast. It is Tuesday, April 7th. Nick Whalen joined again by Alex Barutha and James Anderson uh, for our second rewatch uh, as, as we teased on last week's, which was, of course, 2009 uh, Mavericks Nuggets. We, we stuck with the Western Conference playoffs, went a few years back this time around and, and rewound it to 2006. This is round one. Uh, Phoenix Suns at the LA Lakers. Game six of that series. This took place on May 4th. 2006 we debated several years several games several series to to kind of jump into um for our second rewatch and you know now that we've all seen this uh what, what was your your overall opinion uh on this selection i i personally told you guys last night i totally forgot that this was the season that amari stoudemire was just out of the picture for the suns and, and we'll talk about him later but he only played parts of three games this entire year uh including the playoffs so you know, one of the main reasons for me wanting to go back and watch these Suns was was to just kind of remind myself how good Amari Stoudemire was. Uh, but in lieu of Amari Stoudemire, we got a lot of Tim Thomas in this game. <laughs> yeah, that we did. I had completely, I guess, forgotten that Tim Thomas was like a pretty prominent three-point shooter at that time, especially given like the pace of the league and how few three-pointers were shot. And he came up clutch 
uh, in this game. I think it was also it's also good to go back and see like, you know, because Steve Nash has two MVPs. Some people think he should have zero. Some people think he should have one. So it's it's good to see like what Nash was actually out there doing to you know deserve an MVP. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a another sort of fascinating game that kind of compared the styles of back then with the the modern game. Like, I think you could even the, the Suns are super underhanded. Or, um, like they're down like three guys that they would normally be playing in this game, but they still probably had like five of the seven best players in the game. But it was just sort of the fact that they weren't quite to the point where they were taking enough threes to really take advantage of that talent edge that they were still getting beat pretty hard uh, around the rim. Yeah, before we jump into the individual rosters, and you you hinted at it, this Lakers roster is horrific. And it, it kind of, I have in my notes, it kind of reminds me of the the 2018 Cavs roster that, that LeBron, of course, brought to the finals. It might be worse even top to bottom than that. So I, I think mean, it's just, I think I think so. I mean, I, I don't think Kobe's as good as LeBron was, but I don't. I think the surrounding talent is even worse than, than was on that Cavs team, and just the styles didn't seem to mesh. Um, it was it was not a, a pleasant Lakers team to watch, that's for certain. Um, but to set the scene, the Suns went 54 and 28 this season. They were the two seed in the West behind San Antonio. 63 wins for the Spurs. Dallas actually won 60 games this season, but. Of course, back in 2006, the the three division winners in each conference uh, were guaranteed top three seeds. So Dallas wins 60 games, six more than Phoenix, and ends up getting the four. Uh, they changed that in, in 2015 to, to just ranking teams by straight-up record. Coming into the game, Suns are down 3-2 in the series. They were initially down 3-1. Game four of this series, kind of an iconic Kobe Bryant game. Not, not a great game for him shooting-wise, but um, had a big steal late in regulation to tie the game and force overtime and then had, you know, we were talking about this off air, like arguably his most iconic individual play uh, hitting a game winner at right at the buzzer. Just, you know, one of those plays that you've kind of seen over you know, year over year since it happened. So that puts the Lakers up three, one Phoenix comes back home in game five and, and blast the Lakers one 14 97 setting up this game six. And, you know, I'll, I'll play some audio from the pregame show. I got the impression at least that, Despite this being a 2-7 matchup, people thought the Lakers were going to finish him off. You said last night the Lakers would finish things off tonight. What would keep them from finishing things off tonight? Earthquake. Come on now. (laughs) (laughs) They're going to win. They have outplayed the Phoenix Suns in every game but one. They have a game plan they're not going to change tonight. You know, when you consider the fact that it's not like they it's not like the Suns lost Amari Stoudemire two weeks before the playoffs. Like they basically played the entire year without him, still won 54 games. They, they weren't quite as good. I think they'd won 62 the year before and they won 60 plus again with Amari the next season. So they're a better team with Amari. But, you know, I think there's a, a sense of maybe a, a little bit of a, a, a Ewing effect with with Amari Stoudemire or not addition by subtraction. But just like I, I think not having Amari kind of freed up the Suns to to play in a different way that that unlocked other guys on the roster who when you have to funnel things through Amare, you know, as they did when he was healthy, they couldn't quite play, you know, at this, you know, run and gun pace. Well, the the expectations for this team were like really low. Like their 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 preseason over under was 43 and a half and they went like 10 wins over that or at, yeah, so 
I mean, I agree with you, Nick. Like the for uh, large portions of this game, or I guess even large portions of the season, Boris Diaw is playing center. Like they're not really playing anyone who's over like six foot nine um, most of the time, and so yeah, kind of freedom up to play this the style. I think like every every kind of old wives' tale about how you have to play in the playoffs. That was those were all still fully believed in by people like Charles Barkley and. So like just just the idea that the Suns didn't have a single traditional center was going to lead to a lot of uh, very mainstream analysts assuming the Lakers would win. Just I mean they have size, size wins in the playoffs. You can't win in the playoffs with shooting. You can't win in the playoffs by playing fast. Like all of those things that have since been disproven were still firmly believed in by by a lot of mainstream analysts. So I think that that's sort of where this idea and the fact that Kobe Bryant, like Lakers at home, like it's just a very sort of casual fan pick, right? That the Lakers are going to close things out. Uh, so I, I think that while that, that might have been the vibe on the TNT broadcast, I, I think most people that were smart in writing about the NBA at the time uh, still would have picked the Suns to probably win this series. Mm-hmm. Um, they made a, I think Rajat Bell, uh, he gets suspended before this game uh, for one game. Yes. So he, uh, the Suns, the Suns win game five easily, like I said. And this happens, I, I believe it was early fourth quarter, or late in the third quarter uh, of that game. You know, Rajat Bell had been going at Kobe throughout the series and really throughout his career. And he just clotheslines Kobe on a drive to the hoop. Like he's guarding him one on one. Kobe kind of gets a half step past him. And he, he wrangles him to the ground. Bryant gets, oh my gosh, Bell just clotheslined Bryant. Just kind of a careless play by Roger Bell. So not only are they down Amari Sotomayor, like you said now, they're also down another starter and their best perimeter defender, um, unless you want to count Sean Marion in that discussion, uh, in Roger Bell. So it's, it's a, a Suns team that's missing, what, two of its top six guys? Yeah, and then uh, I think, what was, what was the story with Kurt Thomas, too, like? Um, he was hurt. He, he ended yeah, up coming so back later in the playoffs. I think like that would have been probably three of their top seven or eight guys. So mm-hmm. like that, that sort of explains why this series was as close as it was given just the complete uh, lack of talent surrounding Kobe and Lamar Odom. Mm-hmm. But I still think uh, this should have been an even more lopsided win for the Suns if they'd been, taking advantage of their shooting edge a little bit more. They allowed, like, obviously the Lakers are going to be able to score pretty well in the paint in this one, but, uh, like, Kwame Brown, like, having Kwame Brown should not give you a decided edge in a basketball game. Kwame was a monster in the first quarter. He had 10 points in the first quarter, four dunks, and one, one like, tip-in putback. And he got progressively worse as the game went on and kind of showed off the – trademark Kwame Brown hands a couple times, just like dropping flat out, like easy, easy passes from Kobe uh, for dunks or layups uh, as the game went on, just went right through his hands and went out of bounds. But I mean, he was awesome early on and it, and it kind of showed that, you know, the Suns missing Amari Stoudemire, not, not that he was a great defender, even at his athletic peak, um, but certainly somebody that they could have used just, you know, from a body perspective uh, on someone like Kwame Brown and then not having Kurt Thomas, like you said, and I mean, if you go back and look at how this roster was constructed, like I said, this was a 60-plus win team in 2004-2005. And during the offseason, two months before the start of the 05-06 season, they trade Joe Johnson to Atlanta for Boris Diaw, a future first-round pick, um, and I, I believe another 
first round pick, which which they they end up trading both of those. Um, the first round picks became Rajon Rondo and Rudy Fernandez, so they really don't get anything out of that. But they get Brian Grant, um, and then they they get Boris Diaw, like I said. So Boris Diaw at the time was coming off of his his second NBA season, really hadn't done anything. He was just kind of an unknown bench guy in Atlanta who never really got a shot. Um, but he ends up being really really good, and we'll we'll talk more about him later on. He was great for them um, in these playoffs, really as a whole, and, and got better as the postseason went on. They also traded Nate Robinson in the offseason, along with Quentin Richardson, to New York for Kurt Thomas. So you're you're removing, you know, three of your probably top five or six guards from the previous season in, uh, you know, Robertson, Quentin Richardson, and and Joe Johnson, and you're you're basically trading all that for Boris Diaw, Brian Grant, and Kurt Thomas. And Brian Grant gives you almost nothing. Kurt Thomas is hurt. Um, so this, I mean, you really can't emphasize enough like how how banged up and then how undermanned really this Phoenix team was. They must've thought they like needed, you know, that extra size with Amari gone. Like they may, maybe they weren't exactly sure how they were going to play it. So they wanted to make sure they had, you know, the size that they needed, but yeah, it would have been, I think, you know, this is one of the trades where, you know, you listen to Mike D'Antoni talk now and he says, you know, Oh, we wish we would have been more extreme with it. You know, the seven seconds or less and the three point shooting and, you know, seeing these trades, it makes me kind of wonder if he wished they just would have not made those trades and kept <laughs> well, all those wings and guards. I think I think that that would everyone wishes they had made those trades except for the ownership. I mean, that they, <laughs> they made all those yep. trades basically to save money. And so that those are not basketball. Like Mike Antonio didn't want to trade Joe Johnson. That, that, no, that's pretty clear. Um, the Robert Sarva stink was kind of all over uh the way this roster had been put together during this these peak suns teams i have the book seven seconds or less by jack mccallum which was conveniently written on this season and had a ton of details uh not only about this game and this series but just the entire season and like you said one of them was touching on the joe johnson trade that was 100 percent robert sarver like the the hawks i mean it was essentially a sign and trade and the hawks offered him five million less than the suns <laughs> And I, it, the book didn't really get into the full details, but essentially Sarver just got frustrated and was like, yeah, get rid of him. You know, even though we offered him this contract, like, let's just trade him and, and not deal with it. And it was made very clear that the coaching staff did not agree uh, with that philosophy. So, I mean, I, I, that's kind of been the theme of Mike D'Antoni's entire career, right? I mean, not even not even just in Phoenix. I mean, it kind of followed him to New York and it's happening again to some degree now in Houston, where he has the style that I think is really appealing on the outside and you know, can win a lot of regular season games, but we've, we've seen multiple owners. I don't know if it's frustration with the lack of, you know, actual concrete title results or, or what it is, but multiple owners that have kind of ended up meddling with, with his system and then ultimately throwing wrenches into it. I wouldn't say that the, I, I just think he's had bad luck with the owners he's had. Like, I, sure. I don't think there was anything about it being Mike D'Antoni being part of the reason why those owners were such bad owners. Like, I think it's oh, just no, no. bad luck on his part. Well, even I mean, even looking a couple years later when they trade for Shaq, like I have a hard time imagining that D'Antoni was caping to to get Shaquille O'Neal into this system. No, yeah, no, not at all. That was that was partly like Sean Marion being very over being the third option. Like that, I think yeah. that was the big impetus there. And you know, it's really sad because. Sean Marion was a perfect third option. Like, I mean, he he might be. You could argue like one of the best third options that you could possibly have in his prime years. Like, cause he just is one of those guys where you don't run plays for him. He can guard 
four positions, five positions. And um, so he's just kind of a perfect third banana, but he was right in the middle of his prime and didn't want to play that supporting role anymore. Yeah, I think that's spot on. And he, he defended Kobe really, really well in this game. And I know Kobe finished with 50. It was a, a hard fought 50, a 50 that included multiple banked in threes from 25 plus feet. Um, and I mean, even the shots he made, I mean, he, he caught fire in the third quarter from mid range and I mean, Marion was all over him. Like you, you watch the game and you're, you're never thinking like, how is Kobe open? Like he was not open whatsoever. He just, you know, he's Kobe Bryant and, and hit a lot of tough shots, but I mean, Marion was really the, the ultimate guy in this era to guard the Kobe Bryant's Tracy McGrady's, you know, even LeBron, um, you know, in the mid two thousands. Did you guys notice, notice how Kevin Harlan and Doug Collins were like, confused about Marion guarding Kobe like they they <laughs> said multiple times like they were just like well I guess he's going with this matchup like they were just so confused that Sean Marion would guard a shooting guard like it just didn't make any sense to them at all <laughs> and I'm just like look at the other guys out there like he's yeah the who, who else is he supposed to guard like we don't it's like you need him to go guard Smush Parker well, and look at their other defenders it was either him or Barbosa or James right. Jones or I mean like they, they didn't have anyone so to, to kind of further set the scene in 2006, Steve Nash en route to his second MVP at the time. Uh, they make they make several notes on the broadcast to say that he is not officially the MVP, but there have been these like mysterious reports that he's going to win it. Um, so it's widely expected that he'll win his second straight. He beats out Shaq in 2005. So that's Shaq's first year in Miami. Uh, he won that by 34 votes, which was... I, I didn't look. I didn't go and look back at every single MVP voting, but I would imagine that's the closest ever. Like 34 vote points is insanely close uh, for any MVP in any sport, um, and especially how the NBA does it. Uh, so I went back and looked at some of the writing around that time, and multiple writers, Skip Bayless, who was then with Page Two for ESPN, uh, wrote a big column about how Shaq was robbed. Dan Levitard got himself in hot water, suggesting that Nash only won it because he was white. Uh, which I thought was very strange, although, you know, obviously he's based in Miami and was was probably a little bit biased towards Shaq. Uh, but Nash comes back, wins it again this season, and and won it a little bit more convincingly this time. 924 total votes. The second highest was LeBron, was 688, then Dirk, then Kobe, then Chauncey Billups. So two through five were really close, all separated by about 200 votes. Uh, but Nash was a, a fairly convincing win this season, despite only averaging 18.8 points, 10.5 assists, you know, not not much on the defensive end, but did go 51% from the field, 43.9% from three, 92% from the line. So the 50-40-90, the you know, which which at the time, you know, hadn't really been done, uh, I think probably since Larry Bird in terms of guys who actually qualify and aren't like Steve Kerr specialists, well, what was was what ultimately did it for him. But he's the only MVP in in the what I would call the modern era. So like the last 40 years only MVP to average fewer than 23.3 points per game. So this this was still somewhat of a leap. I mean, to, to get under 20 points per game and win MVP, especially to do it back-to-back years, uh, was, was, to me, a pretty impressive feat by Nash. I think when you do it that efficiently, you lead the league in assists. And it's not just leading the league in assists. It's 10.5 assists to only 3.5 turnovers, which is an insane, uh, an insane margin. And you're talking about a team that won, like, 10 more games than they were supposed to without Amari. Um, you would think that, oh, you know, maybe Nash, does, Nash doesn't have his main weapon. And Amari Stoudemire is going to have a down year. And then he ends up having pretty much the best year of his career. So I think expectations had a lot to do with that. But, I, I mean, this was 
an incredible year. It's one of the best years a point guard has ever had offensively. Yeah, I, I think you could make an argument that nobody made his teammates better to the extent that prime Steve Nash did. Like, I, I don't just the the usage rate. I mean, my one real complaint from him during those years was that he didn't shoot more. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if he if he shot more then he wouldn't have turned. He might not have turned like as many guys as he did into legitimate NBA rotation players. Um, I mean, he basically invented the careers of multiple guys and uh, allowed certain players to just really um, use their strengths with while kind of um, limiting their their weaknesses and just really taking all the pressure on himself offensively. Um, I mean, I think he could have shot more and could have easily averaged in the mid twenties if he had just been like, you know, if he were playing like current day James Harden or current day Russell Westbrook or something like that, he could have easily averaged in the, the mid to high twenties, but he just wasn't built like that. I think part of it too is Nash kind of had the the Giannis effect this season, um, but you know you have to kind of warp it for the era. Like he he quote unquote only averaged thirty five point four minutes per game. Which seems like a lot, but in that era, not really. I mean, I'm looking at the of the 11 players who received MVP votes. He played the third fewest minutes, and the only guys below him were Duncan and Parker, who were on you know a 60 plus win team that was running through the league. So, you know, you look at LeBron's numbers that year. Like I said, he finished second, 31 points, seven rebounds, six and a half assists, one and a half steals, but he played 43 minutes per game. So, so Steve Nash's <laughs> numbers weren't as impressive, but. I mean, he's playing eight fewer minutes per game than LeBron. And I, I couldn't dig up anything that specifically cited that. Um, you know, back then, I, I don't think people were, were doing per 100, per 36 and all that um, quite as often. But I, I would imagine that that was part of it, you know, with, with what his numbers would have been if he was playing 43 minutes a game. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. When you're looking for a credit card, get one that wins awards. The U.S. Bank Visa Platinum Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best of Awards winner for Best 0% Intro APR and Balance Transfer Credit Card. It provides a great way to pay for large purchases over time, as well as consolidating other card balances. And speaking of award winners, the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card is NerdWallet's 2021 Best Credit Card for Dining Out or Ordering In. Earn four times points on takeout, food delivery, and dining. Get two times points at gas stations, grocery stores, and on streaming. If you're into cashback or travel rewards, U.S. Bank has credit cards that feature those benefits, too. Check out their full suite of credit cards at usbank.com slash credit card. The creditor and issuer of these cards is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from VCUSA, Inc., and the cards are available to United States residents only. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. So this season, Kobe, like I said, finished fourth in MVP voting, but second in first place votes. He was coming off of an 0-5 season, his first without Shaq, when he did not get a single MVP vote for the only time in his prime career. So I think it was 99 through like 2014. He received at least one MVP vote in all those years, except for 04, 05. He comes back. Is it fair to say he comes back with a vengeance this season? I mean, it's his best scoring season by far of his career. I mean, this was the year that he had multiple streaks of like, you know, four or five 40 point games in a row. I think he had a streak where he went 35 plus in like 11 of 12 games. Uh, He had the 81 point game, of course, ends up leading the league in scoring. For the first time in his career, 35.4 points per game, but doesn't doesn't get a ton of respect for it. You know, I think it's kind of a Harden or, uh, you know, the, the first iteration of a Harden type of season where 
putting up 35 points a game and leading the league and scoring by a huge margin only gets you fourth in MVP voting. Um, but as we alluded to at the top, I mean, this Lakers roster is so, so bad that I, I, have, I almost feel like I now have a little bit more, I don't know if respect is the right word, but I, I, have, I understand a little bit more why Kobe played the way that he played at this point in his career. Yeah, I looked up uh, who, like, uh, the, the Lakers win shares, and Smush Parker was the third leading win shares guy for the uh, Lakers this year. And he had a six-year career. Like, Smush Parker was horrible. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's it's the talent drop-off after Lamar Odom this season is un, it's it's unbelievable. And that you, I mean, when you actually sit down and watch the game and, like, see what the Lakers are trying to run on offense, it was just like, and we'll get into that later, it was just, like, infuriating that they weren't going to Kobe Bryant more. Um, but yeah, it's a horrible team. I think (laughs) there's obviously a correlation between him averaging this many points and it probably being his worst supporting cast of his, uh, at least worst supporting cast of his prime. Um, I mean, Lamar Odom almost sort of doesn't get enough credit, uh, for being, because just, if you just put Kobe Bryant with just everyone else on the team is at the caliber of like Smush Parker and Devin George. Just that alone probably doesn't get you to the playoffs and, and certainly mm-hmm. doesn't make a, a series like this a series, but just having Lamar Odom, uh, I mean, he was awesome in this game. He was, he could really do it all. Uh, I think that that was uh, about as good as Lamar Odom played alongside Cubby Bryant. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Nick, like watching uh, just how bad his teammates were. You, you don't, you don't want to ding him quite as much for how horrible some of his contested jumpers were. Like, like there were, they were, there were, they some were in this really, game really where there were like two guys completely in his face and he would still take it. But then you'd see Smush Parker try, try to try to get a bucket without him. And you'd be like, yeah, I kind of, I kind of get why you're forcing it. Yes. This was a, a prime Smush Parker game. And he, he's kind of someone that, that gets lost in the fray and just he's just kind of more of a name than anything else. Like, I feel like even casual fans know about Smush Parker. Like, he's just the, the Kobe whipping boy. Uh, I found out his first name for the first time just, you know, during during this game, looking up his his basketball reference pages. His name is allegedly William Parker. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, but he I mean, weirdly, he was kind of good during this regular season. He started all 82 games during the regular season. Eleven and a half points three and a half rebounds, almost four assists, 1.7 steals, 37% from three, 45% from the field, uh, was not a good free throw shooter. But I mean, he, based on how we're judging this Lakers roster, like there's, there's a case to be made that he was their third or fourth best player during the regular season. But like you said, I I thought the same thing about Lamar Odom, James, like this, this was a a really good Lamar Odom game, a quietly good Lamar Odom game. Um, But it was very clear that there was a, a hierarchy on this Lakers roster where Kobe is far and away the best player. Lamar Odom is far and away the second best player. And then everybody else is just kind of in this glut of like, I cannot believe that this guy is starting a finals game. Like the, the graphic that they throw up at the beginning with the starting lineups, like almost seems like a joke. Like I, you know, after watching Charles Barkley, you know, go for two minutes on how he, how the series is over and the Lakers are going to win. And then they flash this graphic that Luke Walton is starting. Kwame Brown is starting. Smush Parker is in the lineup like how it's kind of baffling to me in retrospect that people really really believed in this Lakers team even though at one point they were up 3-1 in the series think think about how bad that this Lakers team would be in 2020 where 
you would basically have Kobe Bryant um, permanently getting double teamed. You'd put your best defender on Lamar Odom. Mm-hmm. You'd put like one guy to protect the paint, and then you'd like have another roamer, and you basically just leave three guys open at all times, and you would just bomb threes. And I, I mean, this this team would just be so so obsolete uh, if they were playing by twenty twenty standards. We we saw the Suns double Kobe for parts of the second half, and that that seemed to work. Um, it, uh, conveniently, at the time that they were doing that, they also couldn't hit shots. So there was a period where the score was stuck in like the mid eighties for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the Suns, until a couple late baskets in regulation, I think had like a three-minute gap with no buckets. Um, but they, they did a, a pretty good job, I thought, defending Kobe as far as defending someone on a 50-point night goes. Um, but he, he just hit a lot of tough shots. And, and like I said, it was hard to fault him for taking a lot of those shots. Looking at the Suns in the regular season, they led the NBA in scoring by six points per game, which is a massive margin from one to two. 20 more points per game than the 30th-ranked team, which I believe was Portland that year. Uh, so that would have been the year before Odin. Um, they led the league in pace, as you'd expect. They led the league in three-point attempts, in three-point attempt rate, in true shooting. Uh, but they were not the best offense in the league. That that belonged to Dallas. So when you started to standardize things on like a per 100 possession basis, the Suns were were still a very good offense, but they weren't, they weren't transcended. It was just that they were playing at such a faster pace than, you know, over 27 of the league's 30 teams or I guess at that point, maybe 29 teams, um, that it really gave them a huge advantage that, you know, you look at some of the teams that were at the bottom of the league in pace, like I believe Memphis was last. And I mean, you're talking like 86, 87 possessions per 100. I mean, the, the, the Suns are blowing those teams out of the water at this point. And it doesn't even matter that they're not, you know, historically efficient. They're, they're just a very good offense that's playing really, really quickly. And, and we heard too uh, on the broadcast, they noted that they set the record this season for the fewest free throw attempts as a team per game ever. Uh, it was 18 per game, uh, which which was a big deal at the time. That was eventually broken, and now is currently held by the 2012-13 Magic of all teams. Um, but, I mean, I, we're, we're kind of right in the heart of them, you know, playing this unique style that, you know, even though it didn't feel like they were taking an overwhelming number of threes, like, for a lot of the league, I mean, they were still very much stuck in kind of that late 90s mindset. You know, they had the second-best offense, uh, in the league by you know offensive rating, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, I mean I they were great and they helped you know I mean they were you know this has been second million times but they were one of the teams if not the team that helped you know modernize basketball and it's crazy that like you know the game we watched for our the first game that we watched between the the Nuggets and the Mavericks that game seems like it was from like 20 years earlier, uh, but it was actually later. Than this game, I think. So it's like <laughs> That's funny. It, it doesn't make any sense. Well, could could you argue that this Suns team actually did what this year's the 2020 uh, Houston Rockets did after the Capella trade? Like, I mean, were they actually going any smaller than this year's Rockets team? Like, everyone acted like after the Capella trade, the Rockets were just going crazy like off the deep end and no one's yeah. ever gone this small before i mean this sun's team was basically just as small as this year's rockets team yeah i think that's totally fair i mean you look at the the minutes breakdown there's not a true center in the rotation at all at all i mean there's the the three big men at the end of the bench brian grant pat burke and and skeetish Vili, who for some reason is on this roster this was the this was his final run in the nba like he's done he's out of the nba after these playoffs 
Um, I mean, the top eight guys, like the only guys who played real minutes for the Suns in the playoffs were Marion Diaw, Nash, Bell, Barbosa, Thomas, James Jones, and Eddie House. So who's who's the closest guy to a center out of that group? Is They were basically playing Diaw as their yeah. full-time center. Diaz is starting center. Tim Thomas is the backup center. You have Marion who could maybe defend some centers, but not the type, not the type of centers that most teams were rolling out in 2006. No, and Diaz is listed at 6'8", and Tim Thomas is 6'10", but he's a skinny 6'10", and he shoots threes. So I think, yeah, I mean, James, you're right. I don't know why this Suns team doesn't get, like, or, you know, people are, are, are saying, like, this Rockets team that exists this year uh, is doing something, like, completely unprecedented. I mean, maybe it's just because, you know, uh, people, like, you know, the Suns are missing Amari, so people are like, oh, they have to go this way. They don't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. It makes sense, but also like this year, Capella was injured or is injured or however you want to put it. So the the Rockets kind of ended up going this way. It, it ended up right. pretty much the same. Well, it would it would it's different with the Rockets, I think, because they traded a guy who like numbers wise is like a borderline all star. You know, like this would be like if the if the Suns rather than Amari getting hurt just traded him for you know a a, a Sean Marion type, somebody like that. Yeah, you know, like I, I think the fact that the Rockets like made the actual act of trading Capella. Mm-hmm. Right. kind of made it seem more radical whereas the Suns maybe had to do it a little bit out of necessity with with Stoudemire hurt yeah that makes sense all right let's get into the game itself uh, I'll, I'll let you guys uh steer it from here what, what were some of the notes that you took uh anything on the game itself the the presentation some of the cameos that we saw what what stuck out early on I mean just kind of an overarching thing like it, during the first half and honestly for like a huge portion of the game like it was I want to say easy to forget that Kobe was out there, but like I continue to be shocked at how much he was just standing around and nobody was like passing him the ball and how, you know, how little effort the, the Lakers offense or how, you know, how little effort Phil Jackson put into like running actions to get Kobe open for jumpers. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of like, Oh, let's feed Kobe in the mid range and have him do one-on-one. But then the double team comes I don't know. Like it, it was a it was a pretty weak first half, and just in the game at, at large, if you would have if I wouldn't have known this was a fifty point game from Kobe, and you're like you would have just asked me how many points did Kobe score this game, I would have said like thirty five, and it was I don't know. It was it was the one of the weirdest fifty point games I've I've ever seen. Yeah, it was. Uh, I mean, there were a lot of I've I have a lot of Kobe notes. Um, you know, he <laughs> the one of my favorite plays was him banking in that three at the end of the first quarter and then going right back to that um kind of fist move uh that he had from his game four buzzer beater like he was really trying to make this thing where he does the the fist after hitting a a big shot and staring at the camera he's really trying to make that a thing um but like (laughs) he banked in the three you know i mean (laughs) i mean i don't know at the end of the first quarter trying to bank in i don't usually like celebrate about it i just kind of like, keep going but um i mean we could agree that both of his bank threes were accidental banks right yeah uh yeah big time i think that's 100 percent the case <laughs> i uh i looked it up i I'll, I'll just use this stat now i since the I, I wanted to know because i thought you know i mean i didn't i didn't think it was like a great 50 point game from kobe so since the game score statistic had or has been used, which is the 83-84 season, there have been 319 50-point games. That includes regular season and playoffs. 
by game score, Kobe's was the 15th worst ever. And I think does he I have the other 14? Uh, he actually has like the third worst as well. Um, <laughs> but I think that was just in large part due to like the seven turnovers, which hurts him because the shooting wasn't like horrible because he got to the line a lot. But I also I also think there's like a I guess maybe a perception now that the media just like loved Kobe and he couldn't do anything wrong. But I pulled a quote from the ESPN website at the time. This is after game six where it says, quote, the big question is, did Kobe Bryant's 35 field goal attempts lead to the Lakers loss? Bryant hit 20 out of 35 attempts. So it's hard to argue that he's hurting the team with bad shots, but the Lakers become disinterested on both ends of the floor when they don't get looks from Bryant. That's like on the front page of ESPN. Um, so I, I thought mean, I, I, I get that, but like who, who again, who is he supposed to pass to? I, no, I, just didn't I, see, I just didn't see like the option. Like he doesn't even have a James Jones type who you can kick it to for a three. Like, you know, I mean, Smush Parker's not spotting up. Luke Walton had some horrific plays in this game. I'm really sorry, James. That fast break that led to an offensive foul Dude, early on was, was one, of, one of the worst plays I've ever seen. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm not arguing. Um, I, you know, I think uh, the the sort of change is overtime, right? Like, I think I think there was a about the right balance that you could hope for with this roster in the first four yeah. quarters. And then in overtime, Kobe like really sort of went into hero ball mode. And, and so maybe if you were to criticize him, it would be that he, he stopped. Cause I mean, like the, the Suns still couldn't stop anyone at the rim. Right. Uh, they just yeah. didn't have the personnel to. And so when you're taking super contested, fall away jumpers uh, without trying to attack the paint. Uh, I, I guess I can, I can see where the criticisms would come. Uh, and, uh, you know, some of those turnovers, like some of his misses were just really bad misses where he would rise up and then realize when he was up that he basically had mm-hmm. to shoot, even though two guys were like right on him. And some of the turnovers were him trying to pass out, like he would rise up for a jumper, realize it was going to get blocked, and try to pass to someone, and then it would get uh, turned over. So I, I think that he was really uh, – he had tunnel vision. I think he, he thought he could probably um, win this game uh, doing it the way he was trying to do it in the in the overtime period. And, I mean, he would have been you know, super heroic if he'd pulled it off. But, yeah, I mean, I think if wasting time trying to – litigate how he should have got his teammates more involved when without just um, kind of making fun of Mitch Kupchak for putting that roster together. I think that's kind of uh, misappropriating blame. Yeah. One of the notes I had on Kobe is just like, it was impressive the lengths he was going to avoid passing at times, especially early on, like in the, in the second quarter, that's where a lot of those turnovers came. And I know exactly some of the plays that you're talking about where he's rising up to shoot and it, it, you can almost kind of tell he's like, he's rising up to shoot, but he's, he's also looking to pass on the way up. And the pass is just, is like just as perilous as the shot. So he just ends up taking the shot anyway. <laughs> like it, the types of shots now that like would just, are, just don't even exist in the NBA. You know, like we, you see James Harden take some difficult step back threes, but at the end of the day, you're like, okay, at least it's a three. Like no, there's not a single player in the NBA who would take any of the shots that Kobe was taking. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, they're kind of Anthony Edwards at Georgia types of shots. Um, yeah, me at pick up hoops types of shots. <laughs> um, there was there was an awesome Kobe play where he 
had a sweet chase down block on Leandro mm-hmm. Barbosa that somehow uh, was <laughs> whistled a foul, basically just because of how dominant the block was. Um, but that, like, that would be on Kobe's playoff montage, I think, if it had been properly ruled a block. Absolutely, that play was a ridiculous. No, no question that was not a foul by Kobe, um, and you know his reaction was was appropriate. But that also came at a point in the game where it was like every other possession was an offensive foul. Like at one point, midway through the third quarter, uh, I, I think the Lakers had six offensive fouls, and like the majority of those came in the first and second quarter. Like they were calling offensive fouls like crazy. Like there was one even on. I think Boris Diaw had a layup and they, they called him for like a midair push off. Like one of, one of just like the weakest offensive fouls calls you'll see. And then to call that on Kobe uh, just kind of went against the, the whole way that the refereeing was going early on. Yeah. That, that offensive push off was one of the worst calls I've ever seen in the yeah, NBA. I, I had to rewind it to see what they even called. I did the same thing. <laughs> yeah. It was, <laughs> it was nothing it was here. Bizarre. I came away pretty impressed with Devin George. I think he was, pretty firmly their third best player in this game. Like I, I know Kwame finished with a very quiet te- or very quiet 17 and nine, uh, but the vast majority of his damage, like we said, came early on and he was pretty much invisible for the entire second half and overtime. Like Devin George had some pretty big shots. He was three of five from three, uh, missed a couple key free throws late in the game, uh, but he finished with 14 points and, and it seemed like all three of his threes came in pretty big spots. My very first note is that Devin George hits the side of a backboard on a three, but uh, after that one, I, I agree with you. Um, it's very telling. Like History is not going to be very kind to the way Phil Jackson coached, uh, especially in his later years, and you can just tell by the way he's handling these rotations that he just doesn't really care at all about spacing. And so the fact that like Devin George – you know, he's not an amazing shooter, but by the standards of the rest of that roster, he's pretty good. And Sasha Vujicic and uh, Brian Cook, like, those guys could at least shoot threes, even though they were pretty terrible at everything else. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think they should have been a little bit more involved. There should have been more of an emphasis on when the Suns are completely collapsing around Kobe Bryant, have somebody behind the three-point line that can make an open three. Um, and that would have probably been George on this team. I, yeah, I think not realized until just now that Brian Cook played in this game. Yeah, yeah you know, I remember from that series, like when I, when I was a freshman in college, I was a huge Suns fan and my uh, best buddy in the dorms was a huge Kobe fan. So we watched all these games and I remember there were a game or two in this series where Brian Cook was legitimately doing damage because he was getting these open threes <laughs> and hitting them. Um, but yeah, this was definitely not a, a Brian Cook game. Not every is, game can't be a Brian Cook game. No, but that, that's that's a good point about this era because it was like you watch these games and you wonder why defenses wouldn't just double team every like good player. Like you you double team Kobe or Lamar Odom, and you don't like you know almost nobody else is a is a competent three point shooter, and so you just kind of double one guy, you know, double the best player, pack the paint so no one can cut, and then if you know that the doubled player makes a pass. Whoever catches it is probably not going to make the three. You could have did that for almost every single team in the league. So yeah. I don't. It's a it's a weird, you know. To some extent, the the offensive coaches or the coaches, you know, their their offensive game plan was a little trapped because they just didn't have the personnel to shoot threes. Like a lot of guys, just there weren't a lot of available elite three point shooters. Um, I think to choose from, but 
yeah, I mean, this is the, the it was the right move. It was very smart by Mike D'Antoni to implement, you know, a, a pretty hard double team or trapping set most of the game. And I actually thought the Suns, yeah, I thought the Suns defended pretty well, uh, given their personnel. Like they, they just did, they didn't have a single guy on the team that would qualify as a rim protector. And maybe if Sean Marion came up today, he would be someone that you would say could protect the rim. Uh, I mean, he definitely had the hops too, but that just wasn't really his game. Um, so you, you're obviously just going to give up uh, a lot of layups just with that personnel, but they did a really good job of forcing turnovers, jumping passing lanes. They, they sort of had to try to take charges. That, that was basically their best way of protecting the rim was to take charges. And you look up and down that Suns roster, and I, I almost sort of feel like just looking at the Suns roster, D'Antoni got a bit of a bad rap for being such a bad defensive coach. Maybe he had some personnel say that led to all these guys who couldn't guard anyone. But uh, really, other than Sean Marion, I think everyone else was a below average defender. Is that, am I, am I forgetting someone? Cause you don't have Raja Bell. You don't have Kurt Thomas. I mean, they're pretty much all below average well, guys besides Marion. Well, yeah, Eddie house. <laughs> <laughs> no, no you're, totally, you're totally right. These, these defenses are like equally bad statistically, you know, like the, the Suns were 16th in defense this year. The Lakers were 15th, but the Suns actually had a defensive game plan. They actually did something to try to mess with the Lakers and Phil Jackson. Didn't, I, I, I think the Lakers just played straight up the entire game and got completely burned a lot of times on drives to the rim on the, on the spaced out offense. Like mm-hmm. I, the, the Lakers defense was like at, at points in this game was like unbelievably bad. And I don't know if they just didn't know how to deal with this kind of offense or what, but it's weird because statistically they're equally bad, but you know, D'Antoni actually, you know, did something to try to keep they, the defense they, active and, and throw all some stuff. How do they not get more credit for having a middle of the pack defense without playing a single center, like a single right. true center, and with only having one good defender on your roster? Like that's that's a crazy accomplishment. That would be, that, I mean, that's that'd be like if uh, the Warriors had finished like middle of the pack and Draymond Green had tried this season. I mean, that, that's basically right. what we were dealing with. Is like an All NBA caliber defender on the wing, and then just a bunch of negatives around him. That, that's like a heck of an accomplishment for, for them to finish middle of the pack in defense. Is it fair to say that people just didn't know about defensive rating back then? Because if you if you just sort by opponents' points per game, they're third worst in the league. Yes, yeah. I mean, I, I, that was definitely being, I think there were corners of the internet that were talking about, at, at the very least, sort of adjusting for pace and just knowing that, hey, this team plays faster than anyone, so just looking at their points allowed per game isn't a great... Uh, thing, but uh, I think like the TNT crews, I mean, it's not like they were setting defensive rating. They would probably have referred to the Suns as the third worst defense. Like I'm sure, uh, like Charles Barkley would have referred to them as as one of the worst defenses in the league. So I, I definitely don't think you were hearing that type of analysis back then. I'm looking. This is kind of apropos of nothing, but you know, we mentioned that the Suns led the league in in three point attempts per game on the season. They actually took fewer than the Lakers in this game, strangely enough. Um, the Orlando Magic that that season took nine three pointers per game. Nine. <laughs> wow, that's hard and to then, believe. And later, a few years later, they would kind of become mm-hmm. this team, you know, in terms of going the, you know, one in on Dwight and then four out. I'm trying to think who was even on the Magic uh, before the Dwight Howard era Magic. Um, it's not pretty. I can I can read you some names if you want. No, <laughs> just just remember that you you asked for this. 
Are we talking about like it was what was the year gap between T Mac and Dwight? This was the year without T Mac. So I, I think maybe the this would have been Dwight's oh boy. Dwight this year is twenty. So I think this would have been like the second year without T Mac. Okay, okay. I mean we're talking Hito Turkaloo, Jameer Nelson, Pat Garrity, Steve Francis, Travis Diener, Keon Dooling, Deshaun Stevenson, Carlos Arroyo. All of these players attempted threes. Dwight took two threes that year. Uh, Darko was on the team. Uh, it was it was a pretty bleak roster, but they somehow finished. You know they got 36 wins. We can we can quickly make fun of Luke Walton a little bit more. Uh, there were there were he had two post ups, and mm-hmm. one of them was an overtime post up where Kobe was the one feeding him, and he was like. He didn't have good position. He was basically like at the nail, uh, a little bit closer than that. And Kobe, Kobe willingly gives Luke Walton a post up that immediately results in like a miss or a turnover or something like that. Uh, but I, I definitely remembered Luke Walton being slightly more confident than he was in this game. And yeah, uh, not not a good showing for him. He did have a nice post up. I think that his first one. Like he he kind of put a double move on I forget who the defender was and, and ended up scoring, uh, but it's I, I think it maybe gave him some irrational confidence where there there are certain players that we've all played with in pickup where you you almost don't want them to hit their first shot or two because then that means they're going to shoot significantly more the rest of the night and that's kind of how I felt about Luke Walton early on uh, although he became significantly less aggressive as the game went on but both both he and and Kwame Brown came out firing early on. Yeah, that was uh, that was surprising. I understand, like, I mean, dude, at that point, Kwame Brown's career. I think at one point in the in the broadcast, like the quote from I don't remember who said it, but they were just like, you know, Kwame just has to come out there, uh, catch the ball, and make his open layups. Like that's the part. Of, that's the point to his career, and that's what he had been reduced to, where it was like just stand yeah. there, catch a ball, make a layup. That's your job, um, which is which is insane. To, to think that that was a player who they were relying upon. I wonder, like, what would the ceiling of these pre-Pau Gasol Lakers teams have been if, like, Mike D'Antoni was the coach of those teams? Like, if you just yeah. said, okay, we don't, we don't actually really have a center, but we have Lamar Odom, who is this amazing versatile guy that can basically play all five positions and we have Kobe Bryant and if we just surround Kobe and Lamar Odom with shooters I mean that that could be a pretty deadly team yeah I mean Lamar Odom at center is definitely something that like he would have done today no question and I'm surprised they didn't experiment more with I mean I don't know if they really had the the like personnel at guard or at the wing to make that happen effectively but I would have like tried it uh, a lot, you know, to at least give some like versatility to the offense. I, I think back then there was this, it was more about defense, right? Like you wouldn't, you wouldn't play Lamar Odom at center because you had to contend with Shaq. You had to contend with Yao Ming. You know, we, we were still very much in that era where people were under the belief that if you have a Shaq type of player, you know, that's what it's going to take to win. And I mean, to be fair, the team with Shaq ended up winning the title this season. But I, I think there was just this like, this fear around the league that like, well, if we play like this, who's going to guard Shaq? Who's going to guard Shaq? Even though some of these teams are only playing Shaq once or twice a year, 
Um, I, I feel like he he almost single-handedly like instilled this kind of fear. And then, you know, other guys like Duncan and KG uh, certainly would present problems as well. But I, I think defensively, teams were just really scared to not have a giant seven-footer, even if he couldn't really do anything but be seven feet tall. Well, yeah, I think I don't I don't think teams really thought of like the other way around. It's like, well, if we play Lamar Ogham at center, how Shaq like we're going to pull Shaq out of the right. paint. And I don't, I don't think they thought like that. And I also don't think teams were doubling enough. You know, it's like, OK, well, we'll just I mean, you Shaq is obviously like the hardest player in NBA history to double team because he just moves people. But like, you know, maybe we'll just we'll just double these post players, which is what the Suns were doing. And then no one else can shoot three. So we're not really giving up anything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you you honestly could have even used Lamar Odom. Uh, as sort of a Ben Simmons type of point guard at times. Sure. I mean, like Smush Parker being the point guard was really just sort of something that debilitated this this Lakers team because you had a guy out there, at least in the playoffs. I, I know he shot okay on his wide open shots in the regular season, but he, um, like, when you have a point guard out there who feels like he has to handle the ball, but he also can't shoot, he's not that great defensively, and you have these two other guys who would be better to have the ball in their hands. It's just, it's a very weird way to, to try to construct the team. So I, I, I feel like they almost could have been, they could have punted at point guard or punted at center and mm-hmm. been okay. And they would have had a, a higher ceiling. They probably didn't have the shooters uh, at the time to really make that sing to the point where they could have gotten to the finals or something like that. But if, if you just took, the Lamar Odom and Kobe Bryant from this season and put them into a 2020 uh, roster and surrounded them with, with shooters. I mean, it would just be really impossible to stop. Would you play Kobe at point guard? Like would it, does it make sense to go just make Kobe the one you're not getting anything out of smush. You're not getting shooting. You're not getting defense. You're certainly not getting passing. Just play Kobe at the one and then throw Devin George in the starting lineup instead. Yeah, I was going to say that. I was surprised at how little Kobe like handled the ball throughout most yeah. of this game. Like you would think you would think that would be the thing to do. Um or at least an option you would go to like half the time. And yeah, I I don't know why they didn't, but it was just, I mean it was just like this this Phil Jackson sort of and then you had the Kobe Michael Jordan thing where Kobe's just mirrored his entire game, like every single part of his game has been mirrored after the best shooting guard of all time. And you have Phil Jackson, who's just light years behind everyone else in terms of um, scheming for kind of a modern game. So, I mean, there's just no chance of it happening given the coach. Uh, But it's just, it's, it's interesting to think about whether, like, I think Phil Jackson gets a lot of credit and, and he probably deserves a decent amount of credit, especially for um, just managing personalities but once Shaq is no longer a Laker, I feel like Phil Jackson's a pretty firm negative as a coach for that team. I think until he got Pau Gasol, because I think Pau was another player who fit that system really well based on what he offered as a passer and as a finisher. Um, but I think there's certainly a case to be made that he's not he's not really a coach who is going to get more out of undermanned personnel. You know, like he's never going to be the guy that would be a coach of the year contender because his team won 10 more games than people thought they would. You know, like I think it's like when he has good personnel, he's a great coach. If he doesn't have good personnel, he has some limitations. Yeah, that, that's a better way of putting it. Do you have any comps for Lamar Odom? The guy for me who came to mind was 
Pascal Siakam. Yeah, I don't think Siakam is the passer that Lamar Odom was, but just body style, um, you know, just kind of versatility. Like Odom could handle it a little bit. He could get to the rim. He could finish uh, with both hands. I, I don't know if there's another player who you know, I like your Simmons comp too, but I, I don't know if there's another player who's like really truly a forward, but but can handle the ball and can pass it. Where like Simmons to me, like he, he's still he's still too much of a guard for that to be a perfect comparison. Like I, I guess maybe a blend of of Siakam and Simmons. Draymond. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, I'd like, like just just offensively, like not yeah. even close to as good as Draymond defensively. But I think uh, he's maybe even a little more versatile than Draymond yeah. on offense. Yeah, well, Draymond has turned into this terrible offensive player. Uh, True. You know, maybe peak Draymond. I mean, Odom was just more athletic and he was longer, and so he could finish around the basket in ways that Draymond could never could never do. Um, yeah, I mean, he Odom is really one of the more unique skill sets in modern NBA history. Just when you factor in size, ball handling ability, passing, I mean, it's just uh, it's pretty rare for a guy that size to have all those tools. I don't think like Jimmy Butler is necessarily the right comp. Um, like it, I don't know. I, I think I like the Siakam comp more because I don't think, yeah, like you, like you said, James, there's not that many guys of that kind of size who have that sort of passing ability can play. I mean, he could, you know, he could post up, he could hit threes, he could run pick and roll as both the role guy and the, and the ball handler. And you just start going down like NBA history, the amount of guys who could do that. It's, it's a very short list. Well, this is just sort of a, a minor observation that doesn't really mean anything, but um, I, I feel like Lamar Odom hit rim on a greater percentage of his three point makes than any other player. Like all of his made threes seem to get a lot of rim. <laughs> he, he did have kind of a lurching shot I, I mean it it looks good because all lefty shots look good but uh yeah a little bit unorthodox what, what about what like a late, i was gonna say late career blake griffin you know you still i still think of blake as oh a yeah athlete that lamar never was but like the style that blake played in detroit these last couple years is like i i feel like i lamar odom could have replicated that if he was given the license to do it yeah yeah that one's pretty solid um yeah, I mean, he's he's a tough guy to come up with a perfect one for just because uh, just all the combination of different stuff he could do. I think we need to, to spend some time on Tim Thomas. I yes. did not realize the backstory of how he got to Phoenix. So he, yes. he they, 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 they kind of ran through this on the telecast. So he starts the season in Chicago, uh, but Chicago apparently decides that it wants to, to go – you know, even more into a youth movement. Tim Thomas was 28 at the time. He's not old, but they, they said it on the telecast. Um, they, they dropped it like so offhandedly as if it was like such an obvious point. They're like, well, they have Andres Nocioni. So yeah, it was kind of yeah, like, well, they don't, they don't need Tim Thomas. Dang, so, I mean, yeah, yeah, Dang, I get, you know, if you want to clear you time have, for him. Once you have Nocioni and Dang, I mean, why, why even roster any more players? Just go with those right. two guys and uh, just see what you have. Uh, <laughs> it was just, it was very funny how like, they they definitely didn't want this to seem like anyone's fault. Like, yeah, Tim Thomas is perfect, but they told him to go home, and it had nothing to do with him. He stayed in shape. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nocioni was only two years younger than Tim Thomas at the time. Right. Yeah, and like, yeah. <laughs> and that Bulls team, like, I think I think it was implied that they were kind of going to try to stealthily tank, you know, because this was the Odin Durant lottery coming up. And I think they were just like, look, we're just going to play these young guys. You know, hopefully Luol Deng turns into something and we'll have a shot at a top five pick. They end up making the playoffs. It, it made no sense. 
Scott Skiles, man. Yeah. Tim Thomas. Yeah. I mean, Tim Thomas had he he's. I don't know if he's like top five or top ten, but he he's definitely on the list of guys where if you just caught them on the perfect night, you would think they were an all star, maybe even like a hall of famer. And if you caught them on another night, you would think they're on a ten day contract, like just a hall of fame. Really, really crazy uh, highs and lows from a game to game basis with Tim Tom. So he, they say this on the telecast, he was just hanging out and working out in Philadelphia for four months. And then he finally joins the Suns. <laughs> he joins the Suns in mid-March. And in seven seconds or less, there's a quote from D'Antoni where he said, the first time he walked up to Tim Thomas, he said, I'm never going to get mad at you for shooting. I'm only going to get mad at you for not shooting. So he was basically given the green light after four months off to just come in and be Tim Thomas. And he was awesome. He scored in double figures in the first 16 games of this playoff run. I uh, had 22 and 15 in game one of the series. He had two huge shots, uh, one at the end of regulation. That was really the play of the game to tie it. And, and then one in, in the, the overtime period that kind of closed the door really on the Lakers permanently and, and kind of sealed the win for Phoenix. I do have one question as it, as it relates to his legacy. Is he the two thousands version of Jeff green? <laughs> I think so. I mean, that's, that's a good name for sure. Did- did Jeff Green ever reach his highs? <laughs> uh, what what were his highs exactly? Like basically this playoff run. Like has Jeff Green ever had a run like Tim Thomas's no. playoff run? Jeff Green has not, but he, I mean he's had seasons. He's had multiple seasons where he's averaged sixteen plus points per game. I mean they were not for great teams or anything like that. But he, I, I think your previous description of somebody who, if you catch him on the right night, right, you think right. might be a hall of famer. Like I think it's Jeff green. Is there another, is there another comparison that would jump out for you on Thomas? I think he's a little, he's a slightly more consistent Jeff green. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, he, he almost had like a, he almost had a higher ceiling than Jeff green and a lower floor. Somehow. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. But that that's a, that's a totally, that's a great call because it's just the the idea is basically just all the tools and none of the intangibles, basically. Yeah, I think that's I think that's exactly right. But again, he was awesome. You know, we, we don't mean to dog Tim it, Thomas too much for this the, specific series on that that game tying three, though. That's that's in regulation. He uh, the Suns just have a, a really tough possession. They need a bucket um, and they need a three. And Thomas ends up it's just the balls all over the place he ends up getting a pretty open look from the corner hits it and then he he does i don't know if you guys noticed did you see him do the jersey pullback to show his heart um oh yeah show the tattoos uh imitating kobe's jersey pullback to show his heart (laughs) game four i mean i just love having the wherewithal to not only hit that shot but then like make fun of uh one of the best players of all time (laughs) I also uh, disturbed to discover that Tim Thomas made less money in his career than Brian Grant did. Oh my uh, Tim Thomas made $97 million. Brian Grant, uh, $109 million for his career. Love Brian Grant. Yeah, it was, nice. <laughs> it was nice to see him. I think the first and last NBA player to have a tattoo of Bob Marley on his arm. <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that for sure. There's, I, yeah, but, like, we I, immediately thought, I immediately thought of Kelly Oubre. <laughs> can we talk about the um kobe's attempt to answer in regulation after sure the game? 
or after the game tying three. Um, I don't know if I've ever seen a more just on a double team. Like I've seen triple team shots that are that are more closely defended, but I don't know if I've ever seen a double team uh, on a jump shot that was more contested than this Kobe airball uh, <laughs> attempted game winner at the end. They were uh, they were playing insane defense. I mean, Kobe was asking for fouls on these jumpers like all game. And I think that was just like a, you know, that that just tells you how closely they were playing him and uh, how like not, you know, obviously he still scored 50. Like, but he was he I don't think he was used to being guarded like that, um, which is weird to say, uh, considering you would think every team would guard him like mm-hmm. that. But he was he was begging for fouls. And, yeah, that was a it was a horrible, horrible attempt. I had to go through and find the page, but in, in seven <laughs> seconds or less, there's a quote. So the, the author of this book, McCallum, is on the bench for this entire season and for this game. So he's, you know, he's kind of relaying some quotes from the coaches. And after that Kobe shot, uh, he's, he quotes D'Antoni and just said, D'Antoni turned to the bench and said, quote, that's a dumbass shot. <laughs> <laughs> it was. I mean, it. It. I, I kind of want to give Kobe some credit. Um, the... The dunk on guys did a great pot like a week ago, um, giving credit to the guys who almost never flop. And like, I, I feel like Kobe probably would have done the step back and, and, and would have played with stuff like that a little bit. Um, but I mean, he didn't, he was shying away from contact on those contested threes, which I feel is slightly more commendable maybe um, than to just, try to pump fake a bunch of times and throw up garbage and hope that they blow the whistle. But yeah, I mean, he was fading away trying to get the ball over multiple guys that were just completely in his face. I don't, I mean, I'm sure there was a bunch of guys wide open that he could have passed to, but there was just no chance he was passing on that shot. And he, I mean, it was the play you run when you have, like 1.2 seconds. It was virtually the situation that we saw in the last rewatch, you know, where Dirk had to throw up that he, I think there was 1.2 left. They had like six seconds left and Kobe, Kobe took his time, you know, it kind of, kind of faced up a little bit and, you know, ends up just being an air ball, but I don't know. It's, it's tough to say that they could have gotten a significantly better look. I don't know. You would think that could be a, an opportunity, um, for Lamar Odom to like, you know, sneakily get a shot. Like you run some action yeah. for Kobe to try the double and then try to see if there's a way to get, you know, Lamar Odom a shot. Although I, I don't remember the exact play and how they were guarding Odom or if he was open or not. Mm-hmm. But you think if they wanted to run some sort of trickery that could at least get an open jumper, that would have been the way to do it. But I understand having, you know, wanting Kobe yeah. to take the last shot because that's, his, you know, that's what he does. Yeah, it, it was kind of an ugly end to this game. A, kind of a long slog in the final two minutes. So Nash is at the line with 2.11 to play. And he hits two free throws to to put Phoenix up 102-100. After that comes that crazy Kobe uh, corner three where he's, you know the shot clock is down and he just you know shoots it over two guys, one of them being Sean Marion, who somehow doesn't block it. Lakers with Parker and Bryant. Kobe. Oh, what a shot by Kobe Bryant! It's a two, and the Lakers on top by one. No, it's a three. That puts L.A. up 103-102. Tim Thomas missed three, which sets up the the Smush Parker play. And I, I hope you guys remember this. This is the one that caused Doug Collins to, I wrote in my notes, whine. It wasn't even a call. It was like a complaint. He's like, this what, is is the Smush, what is Smush Parker doing going one-on-one? He struggled the entire game. Like, he couldn't believe that Smush Parker took that shot. 
it's the yeah, like you said, you you set it up perfectly. It's the play right after probably Kobe's best shot of the game. Yep. Which makes it all the more weird, right? That Smush Parker, who's been playing like a deer in the headlights this entire game, just doesn't want anything to do with doing anything important at all. And Kobe's just hit this this shot that could be kind of a legendary shot for him. Yep. And so Smush, Smush Parker's response on the very next play is to try to do something by himself. Well, and it's not even like I'm looking at the the line score right now or the play by play, and it just says S. Parker misses two point layup. Like that's not what happened. He spun into traffic and then like the ball was just snatched out of his hands by Boris Dio, like yeah. mid play. Like it wasn't even a shot. Like Boris Dio, had he actually released the shot, Dio would have been able to block it like with his shoulder. It was it was in no way it's, going to be anywhere near the rim. And at the time, Kobe is Kobe's on the other side of the court, kind of taking a rest. Like his hands are on his knees. But I think the implication is like, I'm going to go get the ball in five seconds here and I'm going to get yeah. a shot. And Smush just like never even gives anyone a chance to start the offense. You know, he was going to take them by surprise. I mean, that that yeah. was definitely an, an official scorer's nightmare because you could have labeled it a block, a steal, a miss. Like <laughs> who knows what you want to label it, but it was just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and then of course on the next possession, so the Suns, uh, and end up missing a shot, and it's still it's still 105-102 Lakers, or excuse me, 103-102 Lakers, and then Kobe gets to the rim, really nice finish to put the Lakers up 105-102 with just under 30 seconds remaining. So at this point, the Lakers are up three at home with a chance to close out the series, and it's really looking like that's what's going to happen. Uh, and then we get to that possession that you that you touched on, James, a pretty ugly one for Phoenix. Steve Nash actually gets the you know the ball's kind of bouncing around and ends up with a, a really nice corner three look for Nash. That rims out. Awesome rebound by Sean Marion. Um, kind of reminiscent of like the Bosch rebound with, yeah. with just under eight minutes, with just under eight seconds left. He he takes his time, you know, kind of assesses things, ends up finding Tim Thomas wide open, top of the key. Uh, and that that of course sets up the the Kobe impersonation after the shot. Suns have not hit anything from the field in the last three minutes. They need a three to tie. Nash lost it, got it. Barbosa and Nash for the tie. Marion the rebound. Tim Thomas with the fake for the tie. 6.3 to play in regulation. <laughs> Timeout. Oh my, what a shot. We get into the overtime period and it was all Suns, you know, really from the start. Yeah. You know, Kobe, I think Kobe actually had the first bucket of OT, but after that, the Suns scored on four straight possessions. Uh, the Lakers just looked tired. Kobe looked tired. Um, the shots he was making, you know, he had another bank three, his third of the game uh, in the overtime period. And, you know, the Suns were starting to run a little bit, starting to get a lot better looks. Tim Thomas had had that dagger three uh, with 141 remaining. And then a couple possessions later, they have uh, an easy two-on-one run out after a Lakers miss uh, that that ends in a Boris D out of Sean Marion alley-oop dunk with 57 seconds left. That was pretty much the exclamation. That was a that was a brutal alley oop because that was on Kobe too I think right. I or believe was that on, so. I think I think it was on Kobe. It was either that or Smush Parker. Uh, <laughs> it was not difference. a good pass. But, like Marion Marion had no. to catch it. The ball was like directly over the rim. Like it looked like it would have been a goaltend, but it was it was obviously a pass. You know, so they didn't call it. But it was yeah, not a great pass from Dio. But yeah, I mean you're right. The the Lakers were just really tired there. I the ran the Suns somehow just like they were not gassed at all in the overtime. What did you what did you guys think about the iterations from this season and these playoffs of Boris Dia and Leandro Barbosa? 
and like how those sort of skill sets would have translated, I guess, today and whether or not those guys would have been better or worse. DL kind of did end up becoming a stretch five because he just got fat and he just like ended up playing, you know, that position for the Spurs. So I don't know. I mean, I think I think both of these guys were. I th- I think they both were going to end up being pretty good. I mean, there's like with most of the roster, but those guys. I mean, the ability to play three positions I don't think was as valued back then. And those are all guys who could have played probably at least three positions offensively and and been available part of like any offense that was you know run and gun, three point shooting, um, and playing maybe even a little small. This was. I mean, this was probably. Far, I think. At least to date, this had been Barbosa's best game by far. It was, I mean, it was kind of a, a coming out party to him. That's the only reason I brought him up. Um, but yeah, Dia, man, if he if he had just been able to stay in that shape, like the the type of shape he was in for this season, if he had just been able to stay in that shape for the next like seven or eight years, he could have been uh, one of the more underrated guys. I mean, he was. I think he was in pretty decent shape for the that one Spurs team that uh, that beat the Heat. Um, but yeah, I mean, he just kind of he never really had that sort of five, six, seven year steady run where he was at the same sort of level. He had some athletic plays early on, especially in this game. Like that, that was not the Boris Diaw that we've seen. You know, I mean, he 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 was still playing in the league what two years ago. Um, and that that like that version of Boris Diaw is not what we saw in this game. I mean, he he looked like a completely different guy, and they didn't they didn't really talk about him much on the broadcast. But he he was the most improved player this season. It it came down to him and Speedy Claxton, and and Boris Diaw ended up winning that award. And if you look at his numbers in the conference finals against Dallas, that was a series that Phoenix, of course, lost. But Dio had two thirty plus point games in the conference finals, and in that six game series, he averaged twenty four points, eight and a half rebounds, three assists. 1.7 blocks. Uh, he had a 16 assist game in the regular season. Like he, he, we talked about Lamar Odom being a unique guy, but I mean, Boris Diaw, uh, his numbers back then, uh, particularly for that era were just extremely unique. Like during the regular season that year, he averaged 13 points, seven rebounds, six assists. I was just a little surprised to learn he didn't take more threes then. Cause that season during the regular season, he took like half a three a game. Like it wasn't until yeah. the like, 08, 09 season when he went from Phoenix to Charlotte that he he cracked up you know one at least one three a game mark and he went up to two point two. Yeah, I I really think that that sort of version of him from this season and especially this uh, playoff version of him, I mean he could have been like the second best player on a on a pretty darn good offense in twenty twenty just given yep. like, if you were willing to kind of run everything. Uh, Sort of like the the Nuggets do with Nikola Jokic. If if you just sort of made him uh, one of your offensive hubs, I mean he there was he didn't really have a weakness uh, at this point, and he was being asked to probably do more than he was capable of doing defensively, just given their lack of centers. Um, so yeah, I mean that, that this was definitely a a big time Boris Diaz season. I want to go back to Sean Marion a little bit. I, I think there's an argument to be made that this is his peak season. He was 10th in MVP voting this year, the highest that, that he ever ranked. He, get, he got a few votes. This was his third All-Star berth. He, he made the game one more time the following season. Uh, but during the regular season, he was 22-12, two assists, two steals, 1.7 blocks. 
Yeah, he was he was ridiculous. He actually led the Suns in win shares. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is I mean, like clearly one of the most underrated players I think in NBA history. I a two time All NBA. I feel like he could have made a few, he could have made a few more than that. Like you just look at his, you know, you look at his stretch from. Uh, I mean, even his his second year in the league, he was good, but yeah. his, his stretch from like oh in the 2001 season to 0506 and he was consistently like 20 points a game, 10 rebounds, combined three and a half steals and blocks, like you know, 50% effective field goal percentage. Like he's he was incredible. Um and someone that like would have fit obviously in this modern era and could have played I mean, Marion could have played four positions, you know, shooting guard through center. I mean, he was he was dominant. He was an amazing two-way player. He reminds me a little bit of uh, like a little bit of Clay Thompson, just in terms of like how how and why he's so underrated, uh, because he was just he was never the best player on any of his teams. And he could have fit so perfectly on any team, like any team really in NBA history. You could put Sean Marion on that team and he would probably be starting and you wouldn't really have to ask any of your other players to do anything they weren't already doing. Is he like, is he like the, the peak version or the best version possible of Robert Covington? Like, I think what Dan Tony wants in Robert Covington on the Rockets is like who Sean Marion was. Yeah. Like poor man's Sean Marion. Um, not definitely not the rebounder. Uh, no, no. Um, you know, and I think probably what was most underrated about Marion at the time, uh, he definitely gets a lot of credit for this now because of what he did with the Mavs on their title winning team. But defensively, uh, I mean, he was probably a top five defender in the league at this point, but just was never going to get that type of recognition because of where his team was and points per game allowed. But I think if you, you know, what, what better player to try to put on, a LeBron James or Kobe Bryant. I mean, he like Kawhi Leonard, obviously, but um, I mean, prime Sean Marion could have shut down whoever or not shut down, but like done a really good job on really any good wing score in the league. Something that's a, a primary theme in the seven seconds or less book is how underappreciated Sean Marion himself believed that he was like, there's a note that after this game, you know, Steve Nash brings everybody in. They do, you know, one, two, three sons. Let's go win game seven and all that. You know, he gives this great speech and the authors, you know, walking out of the of the training room and, and kind of out to the main media area. And he said, Sean Marion's just sitting there with his feet in an ice bucket, towel over his head. And, you know, he said, he said, I tapped him on the shoulder and just said, good game. And he said, when we win, it's everybody but me. When we lose, it's all my fault. I don't understand it. So after a huge game six win to send a, to send a series back home for game seven, uh, Sean Marion was upset because, well, the, the backstory to this is that, which is even more bizarre, the author notes that right after the game, all the players like shushed everybody in the locker room because they needed to hear the TNT postgame show because they wanted to hear what Charles Barkley had to say. I cannot, I cannot imagine that that is happening in the current NBA locker room. <laughs> like the, the players were, the players were hanging on his every word and apparently Barkley praised Steve Nash endlessly and just said, you know, this is why he's the MVP, blah, blah, blah. And, and Marion, I guess, took that very personally. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a reason why there aren't many elite role players, right? Like, you know, the guys 
nobody like almost nobody in the NBA has Clay Thompson's personality where he just doesn't care at all. And mm-hmm. you have to have that personality if you're going to be a elite role player over a long period of time and throughout your prime years. And, and just having that complete lack of um, selfishness or, you know, required um, gratification for your efforts, like that's just not a trait that you find in many pro athletes, let alone NBA players. So that's, I mean, it's not surprising at all. And that's the reason why there just aren't that many guys uh, like Clay Thompson. What did you guys think of the Suns uniforms at this time in history? Terrible. Really bad. Really, really bad. I I at least respected the orange ones. I thought those were cool, Um, though they weren't really that different. Like the gray sides were Those ones said like PHX on them, right? Instead of Phoenix or Suns. Do we we think, did the NBA get the same person to design these as designed those Mavs ones and like the Nuggets (laughs) ones? Like, is it just... Didn't they he? Did he have a hand in designing the the Mavs? I think one of their alternates, like the green one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. But the, the, there was just this horrible run of NBA uniforms in the the 2000s, and it it really kind of culminated in these Suns uniforms that were just. I mean, the Suns uniforms from the 90s are one of the best NBA uniforms of all time. Yeah. And right. then they they decide to just abandon everything to do with those uniforms from a logo color scheme standpoint and <laughs> try to do something new. And yeah, these are just terrible. They I look like they're sponsored by Ant one and the rest of the league is sponsored by Adidas. <laughs> I, uh, I would understand like, you know, like those, you know, those old Suns jerseys, they were like very eighties. So I would understand wanting to update them like a little bit with like a different font or something, but like to completely change it, uh make zero sense well the cool the coolest thing was always the orange and black um, yes and these just kind of completely lost the black element yeah well they yeah they yeah, went they with this like with deep, gray. deep bland gray like even, even if it had been you know a little like sparkly or more of a silver i think that would have been i wouldn't say cool but it would have been better than this yeah just uh just a bad bad time for nba uniforms Speaking of uniforms, by the way, second to last game of Kobe in number eight. After this season, he switched to 24. I was surprised to see him at eight when, when we pulled this game up. I was like, this still? Uh, oh, so that was... um, did you guys notice the Suns had personalized orange armbands? I did. Barbosa had one. Very nice. It was like Tim Thomas had one. Um, Sean, so the, Tim Thomas had one that just said TT in his number. Sean Marion had one that said Matrix and his number. Yeah. And I just, I got to know, like, did somebody's, like, girlfriend just make all these and hand them out? Like, how <laughs> did how did they come to into existence? <laughs> no, these were these were a thing at the time. Like, I, Tracy McGrady always had ones with his logo. I remember Vince Carter always had a VC15 one. I, I think this was, this was probably the absolute peak for elbow bands, bicep bands, forearm bands. Notice that we see no shooting sleeves. We see no undershirts. I think Kwame Brown was the only guy even in a headband, but very, very big on the like randomly placed bands on the arm, which like I don't think anybody in the NBA wears any of those now, right? It's either like a sleeve, maybe maybe like a wristband or wrist tape if you have a, of an issue, but like you don't see like the Ben Wallace double bicep bands or anything like that anymore. NBA accessory uh, fashion evolves incredibly quickly. 
It does. It really does. Yeah, we're gonna have we're gonna have another lost era because of that half a season that the NBA allowed the ninja headbands. Yeah. People are gonna watch those games and be like, "What?" Like ten years from now, and be like, "What? What? What is happening here?" Uh, that's a good point. So I, w- I want to talk again, not even really about the Lakers roster, but like under the the theme of like how bad this Lakers roster is, and even how bad some of the depth is for Phoenix. Like, is it fair to say you can trace this back to four consecutive like pretty bad drafts from '99 through '02? If you start in '99, the best player in that draft in in terms of win shares is Sean Marion and Manu Ginobili is is right behind him so it's, it's those two and then a pretty significant drop off to Andre Karolinko, Jason Terry, Elton Brand, Andre Miller um, you do have Baron Davis you have Lamar Odom you have Ron Artest, Steve Francis like a lot of guys who are maybe good for like one individual season or they had a three or four year run where they were really good but not a lot of sustained success in that draft then you get to 2000 which is arguably the worst draft ever you know Michael Red. Mike Miller, Hito Turklu are your top three in win shares. Uh, the Ringer just did their their redraft of this one, and and they still went with Kenyon Martin at number one, which says a lot. And like once you get outside of like the top five in that draft, I mean you're talking like deep bench players. Um, 2001, you have Pau Gasol, you know great pick, obviously lived up to the billing, but beyond that, a lot of like just really good players, no great players. Tony Parker, Shane Battier, Joe Johnson, Jason Richardson, etc. And then you get to 2002, you have Yao Ming at the top. Obviously, he's good when he's healthy, but he only ends up playing eight years, less than 500 games. You have Amare in that draft. You have Carlos Boozer in that draft. You have Tayshaun Prince in that draft. But again, beyond those four, it's the Karan Butler, Matt Barnes, Luis Scola, Fred Joneses of the world. Like You could argue that not a single like true superstar entered the league for four consecutive drafts. And as all of those players are now coming of age and kind of getting to what should be their primes, you just you just kind of see this generational gap between the Kobe, T-Mac, Vince Carter, Tim Duncan, Shaq group and the LeBron, Wade, Bosch, uh, Mello group, who's, you know, three years in at this time. There's there's just like no really good, like 25 year old players in the NBA at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's part of the story behind Steve Nash winning multiple MVPs exactly and um part of why you can look at uh, especially the Eastern Conference you can sometimes look at the teams that were coming out of the East to face like the Spurs or whoever um the Lakers like a lot of those teams that lost to the Spurs and Lakers early in this decade are just not finals caliber teams like I was watching uh, last night they, they were showing some of the Spurs nuts game, um, from like 20 years ago or whatever. And like that Nets team, it's like an okay team, but not certainly yeah. didn't scream NBA finals caliber to me. Um, so it just was not a, a peak point in league history from a talent standpoint. No, certainly not. And I think you could argue that the, the next Lakers season, Oh six, Oh seven, I think that roster was somehow like even worse. I mean, it's basically the same cast. Uh, you still have Lamar Odom, but that's that's the year that things kind of boil over for Kobe. You know, the year before Shaq gets his title in Miami, you know, he's kind of back on top. Kobe averages 35 and a half points a game, doesn't really get that respect. So after the 06-07 season is when he, you know, allegedly requests a trade. You know, it's it's always it's kind of a he said he said situation in terms of, you know, would the Lakers actually trade him? Did he actually want out? Of course, he ends up staying. But I found a a May 2007 ESPN article 
that breaks down some of the possibilities for at this point, it looks like Kobe's going to get traded. And some of the possibilities are you could send him to the Bulls for Luol Deng, Ben Wallace, or Tyrus Thomas. Not Wallace and Thomas. You're not you're not getting both those guys. You could send him to the you could send him to the Rockets straight up for Tracy McGrady. You could trade him to Portland for Brandon Roy and Zach Randolph. And then the the author of this article, which was not listed for some reason in the archive, the author goes on to note that a Kobe Greg Oden pairing could dominate for the next decade. There was a report. This is quoting from the article. It says many in Dallas have already written that the Mavs would dangle Dirk Nowitzki for Kobe. <laughs> Can you imagine? So can you imagine? I, yeah, I know. I know that. Um, I think Mark Stein has refuted the fact that they would have ever considered Dirk for Kobe. And I remember, uh, I think it was Jerry West. Uh, after Kobe died, Jerry West was talking about how he had to convince Kobe to not uh, play for the Clippers. But I can't mm-hmm. remember what offseason that was regarding. Uh, I think it I must have been the same the, one. The Bulls trade rumors were definitely the ones I remember the most. Right. Yeah. So the betting odds at that time in May of 07, the most likely trade destinations were Chicago, Phoenix, and Dallas in that order. So there was some thought that the Suns would trade Nash for Kobe. That would have been wild. I, I mean, a Nash, a Nash Kobe combo would have been terrible. I would feel so bad for Nash. <laughs> yeah. There was also the final one. I have to read this just because it's so ridiculous in retrospect. But this is, again, quoting from the article. The Hawks could trade Joe Johnson, Tyron Lue, Josh Childress, and the number three and number 11 picks to the Lakers for Kobe and number 19. In that scenario, Kobe would then have a great core around him of Marvin Williams, Sheldon Williams, Josh Smith, Salim Stoudemire, and then they could pick a point guard at number 19. (laughs) That sets Kobe up for the next decade. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I, in retrospect, probably not all that realistic that he was ever going to be traded. But it got to the point that they actually put odds on it. Was it That's crazy. Was it game seven of this year's series against the Suns where Kobe basically um, just decided to stop trying for the entire second half as, as kind of a look at how bad my teammates are? Or was that the following season? I believe that was I, this one. I think so. because I, I took 16 shots. Yeah, because when I uh, uh, when I was when I was looking at that ESPN page from that season, one of the like uh, headlines or pieces of information on there was like Kobe scores one point in the second half of Game Seven. Yeah, because I, I yeah I remember vividly watching a game where the Suns knocked the Lakers out, and Kobe was trying early in the game, and then once he kind of decided they they weren't going to win, uh, he. What was the series where LeBron kind of did that in, too? Um, that was the Boston just, series. Yeah, where he just sort of stopped going past the three-point line on offense. Yeah. And yeah, I, 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 It's kind of a rite of passage move for a great player <laughs> on a bad team. All, all the greats have done it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it had to be this year because I'm looking at his 07 playoffs. And they played the Suns again in round one in 07. And Kobe took 33 shots in the deciding game. So I don't, I don't think it was that one. <laughs> Do you guys have any notes on the presentation? I don't it was, think it was I pretty, do, actually. It was pretty tame. Yeah, there wasn't a lot yeah, to make fun of, unfortunately. they. I had to go to a separate video from like the full one that we watched for this, but the intro to the game was set to Fort Minor. Remember the name? Hell yeah. Um, it was very... It, it, 
it was dated even for 2006. Like it looked like they had they had like had this in a vault and actually made it in like 1997. Um, so very dated there. I thought early in the game, Doug Collins refers to Phil Jackson as Philip Jackson. I don't know if you guys caught that. I've never heard anyone call him Philip Jackson. I missed that. I missed that. There was also a graphic at one point where they displayed all the players who were currently suspended in yeah. the playoffs. And it was, it was James Posey, Udonis Haslam, Raja Bell, Ron Artest, like a, just an easy four for four. And as they're displaying that graphic, they're playing Don't Funk With My Heart by the <laughs> Black Eyed Peas in the background. So just a, just a very 2006 aesthetic. I can't yeah, even I, imagine there being like four suspended players in the playoffs nowadays. Yeah, right. <laughs> that was I don't even think it seemed like that out of out of whack for like mid 90s or mid 2000s for there to be um, multiple suspended players. Uh, I do remember there being a lot of Fort Minor and Black Eyed Peas uh, mm-hmm. played on my my dorm hall and me being very uh, opposed to it. But um, yeah, that definitely that definitely screams 2005, 2006. I made a note of some of the notable cameos, mostly players in this game, uh, who I just either forgot were on one of the rosters or we saw very saw briefly him. on the bench. So number one, James Jones starting. I completely forgot that he had this stint with Phoenix, and he hit a couple big shots, a couple threes throughout this game. Uh, so he was pretty good. We saw some Eddie House. We saw yeah. Brian Grant briefly check in and immediately miss two free throws and then check out. We saw a short-haired Sasha Vujicic come in for a few minutes and really give the Lakers nothing. Uh, Pat Burke hyped on the bench throughout this game. Basically, any time a timeout was called, <clears throat> he was the first guy out greeting everyone. Uh, but the guy I really want to talk about, Ronnie Turioff. He was referred to as Mr. Energy Guy when he checked in. And you could tell, like, the Laker crowd, like, any time he touched the ball, the crowd, like, immediately roared. It was, it was kind of like a, a precursor to the Caruso situation. <laughs> yeah uh the laker the laker crowd uh bad bad times and ronnie Turiaf's the the fan's second favorite player on the team i can't remember him being like a big baby davis figure yeah 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 for sure yeah that's a really that's, good comp actually that's, exa- that's exactly what he was there for i found a, a photo gallery from this game that was that just showed all the celebrities in attendance you really you could only see one of these guys, I think, during the telecast because he was literally sitting on the bench right next to Kurt Thomas. That was Larry David, who looked in 2006 exactly like he looks now. He was sitting with with Jeff Garland. Jack Nicholson, of course, was there. Bill Russell was there. Clyde Frazier was there. Mary J. Blige was there. T.O. was there in like the baggiest jeans of all time, a huge oversized white button down and then a white Kobe jersey over the button down. Very strange look, plus a backwards hat, plus sunglasses. <laughs> Ray Romano was in the house and Denzel Washington was in the house. So this, even by Lakers standards, this was a, a pretty packed celebrity row. Can we, I mean, can we really blame most of the NBA or especially Phoenix for having such horrible jerseys when mid two thousands fashion, maybe the worst decade or half decade of fashion in human history. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a really good point. (laughs) Um, there was nobody could be saved uh, from mid 2000s fashion. Yeah, I saw a picture uh, of I think it's a I don't know if famous picture is the right word of KD and Russell Westbrook talking to Steph Curry in high school yeah. <laughs> or in college. I can't I can't That's remember college. which one, but college. Okay, Russell West, Westbrook has his tracksuit 
tucked into his baggy dark wash like jeans. Yeah. That was a very G unit inspired look. Oh my god. I know exactly the photo you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. Um yeah, so I mean we also need to talk about just Kobe's jersey bagginess in general, you know, outside <laughs> of him about to switch numbers. Like this was something that carried throughout his career. I don't think there's ever been a guard who's worn like a center's jersey on purpose like that. Like nope. <laughs> There's really no player in the league now. Like every jersey is like as tight as possible. It seems Kobe, Kobe kind of held on to that as long as he could. I mean, uh, Kobe's jersey then is bigger than Dwight Howard's jersey now. Oh, absolutely. I I, I gotta give Kobe credit for somehow still like looking kind of cool in that yeah. look. Like it, you just describing it, it sounds like it would just look horrible. But he somehow it it didn't look that out of place. No, it certainly didn't. And do you, it might have been this year. Actually, no, I think it was a couple years after. Do you remember when the NBA made the players wear short shorts for a game? It was a Lakers-Celtics game. <laughs> yeah. And they wanted to do like a throwback theme. And everybody wore short shorts. And I, I believe Kobe at halftime just couldn't take it anymore and changed back into his super baggy shorts. <laughs> I, actually don't, I actually don't remember this. Uh, yeah, did, wait, I'm pretty sure. Did they, did, they, um, did they also like wear the uh baggy jerseys oh yeah i see pictures of this now after yeah, i googled like, that? uh i i just googled lakers celtic short shorts and I just googled the results. um the wow. best part is everyone's still wearing ba- the baggy jerseys yeah so like it's it's this weird it's this weird like modern slash throwback look it's kind of wild actually yeah like kobe kobe's still in his double xl jersey but his shorts are like mid thigh he's wearing long compression shorts under the short shorts too yeah i mean yeah yeah not not a great look for our man okay so the only thing i have left only major point i have left in my notes is amari stoudemire who i i warned you guys a couple days ago even though he's not playing in this game we needed to talk about amari stoudemire who at, at least statistically i think has become pretty underrated like you know, I, I, to me, I think he should be in that like Chris Weber conversation, where you talk about guys who maybe at the end of the day don't deserve to make the Hall of Fame, but had the kind of peaks that had they had two or three more years at that level, you know, absolutely would have been in. Um, so this season, he he misses the first 66 games after undergoing left knee surgery. He comes back out of nowhere in March plays like two and a half games and then it's determined that it's a bad idea for him to play and he's shut down and ends up getting surgery on his other knee. Um, But the previous year he put up 26 points per game, nine rebounds, one and a half assists, one and a half blocks, one steal finished ninth in MVP voting. Um, And if you go and look back, like there are not many people, uh, many big men, many players over the course of not only this period, but really the entire history of the NBA who who have been able to to match that 25-8-1-1. In terms of modern guys, it's like Anthony Davis, Giannis, DeMarcus Cousins, Kevin Durant, Carl Towns. Those are the only guys. And if you look historically, you know, Barkley did it once. David Robinson did it a few times. Hakeem Olajuwon. Um, I mean, it's really, it's a who's who of guys who are all either going to be Hall of Famers or are already in. And the only guy who doesn't fit that criteria is, of course, Chris Webber, who had that year uh, in 2001 that, that, that he put up the, the 25, nine, one, one. So even though we didn't get to see Amari in this game, I just, I just want to take a moment to recognize how awesome he was for a few years before the knee injuries really got to him. Yeah. I, 
I really like the Weber comp because, um, yeah, I mean, I think Amari falls short of being Hall of Fame caliber, but if all you were looking at is just like total amounts of all NBA teams made and total amount of all-star appearances, I mean, he's probably got more than a decent amount of guys that are in the Hall of Fame, but yeah, um, was, def- was definitely way more peak than uh, sustained excellence and probably is probably lucky to have had his sort of prime when he did because uh, was a pretty bad defensive big man and maybe he would have been a decent stretch shooter but you know I, I think he was more of a lock to be pretty dominant in the early to early to mid 2000s than he would have been uh, right now yeah i mean amari amari is crazy like if you you know there's every every good player has their you know 20 minute highlight video on on youtube and his are insane like the hit him and nash together and like you said nick it's unfortunate we didn't get to see them together in this game but like you know, even in the modern NBA, I understand he's not like a stretch big, but I think he still would have he still would have done really well in today's game, especially because you could. I mean, you, and they basically were running like a spread pick and roll with him, um, mm-hmm. kind of like I don't know. He's it, it, it was like you know Blake Griffin. We never really saw that out of him because DeAndre Jordan was always there. But yep. you know, I think it kind of would have been similar to if Blake Griffin was a few inches taller and you played him at center. And he, he could have been dominant in, in that same way, I yeah. think, even today. I mean, it could, yeah, I think, could have been sort of, sort of like the role we think Zion Williamson's going to have. Yeah. yeah. But I think, I mean, I think, I think Amari could have stretched the floor if he had really been playing in today's game. Because right now I'm looking at his, his long mid-range accuracy. And in the following season, 06-07, uh, actually, sorry, 07 away, he shot 51% from the long mid range. I mean, he's like 49, 50, 45. Like, he was he was money from there. So, I think he could have yeah. stretched out if they really made him. That's what I like about the C Web comp, is he just had a deadly 15, 16 footer. Mm-hmm. Uh, C Web definitely a way better passer. But, um, yeah, no, I think I think that that's that's all fair to point out. And if he, I mean, if he just bet on those Suns teams, in today's game, he would have had enough spacing that it wouldn't have been a big deal. Yeah. He would have just been one of those guys where you, you had to make sure that he was surrounded by four shooters. Um, and hopefully yeah. uh, someone like Sean Marion who could help him on defense. I almost want to go back and watch a random Suns game with him in the lineup, you know, cause I, I don't think we really saw the true Suns offense in this game because like you said, Alex, the spread pick and roll with Amari. Like when I, when I think of those Suns teams, it's running gun and it's, Steve Nash, you know, dropping a, a pocket pass to Amari for just like a one-step dunk through the lane. And obviously we didn't get any of that in this game. So I, I think it would be interesting to kind of compare the Suns offense with Amari to to what it looked like without him. But like you said, James, I mean, in terms of all NBA, like he's up there with a lot of guys who, especially with the way that the NBA Hall of Fame lets people in, he, I mean, he's comparable to kind of that T-Mac, Mitch Richmond, Chris Webber, like we said, range. I mean, he has four second-team All-NBAs. He had a first-team All-NBA the year after this. So he comes back after double knee surgery and is immediately a first-teamer. I mean, his, his peak at, at the time was was pretty much as good as any power forward that you're going to find. But I, I do think the like the lack of defensive impact kind of trails him. You know, I, I think he's 
he's not as skilled as Towns, but I, I think he kind of carried that same type of aura, at least of like, yeah, he might he might get to a, two blocks a game, which he did in, in 2007, 2008. But I don't think he ever considered Amari Stoudemire as like a fearsome defender. Well, he he had no idea where to be like that. Right. That was just as a team defender. He was just pretty bad. Um, and that's that's part of why. Uh, I mean, they, they knew about his knee, obviously, too, but um, tough guy to tough guy to like signed to a, a max deal um towards the, the later part of his prime just given the fact that he was um so bad defensively i i think the ultimate kind of sliding doors moment with amari is i, I went back and actually confirmed that this happened he was the first choice over chris bosh to join wade and lebron in miami and how that would have gone down you know with with the, the way that his career spiraled i mean that that immediate season i mean he ends up playing 78 games for the Knicks in 2010-11, but that was it. Like after that, his career really never got back off the ground. He he got hurt again the following season, which was the year that Miami won its first title. I mean, it's pretty easy to imagine like if, if the Heat go all in on Wade and LeBron, and two years into that, two of those three guys start having chronic knee issues. Um, just how sideways that could have gone, you know, almost almost even faster than it did. And obviously, they were able to to right the ship and win two titles. But I think there's a case to be made that if they sign Amari instead of Bosch, they maybe don't win any or maybe only get one. Yeah, because I and you said it like you you sign Amari and you have Wade who is basically playing like sixty ish games for a lot of that stretch, and then you would have like it would <laughs> a lot of those games would just end up being LeBron on his own again, like yeah. like he like but actually in a worse situation than he was in Cleveland because they had spent a bunch of money on Wade and and Stoudemire and had no bench and LeBron would have. I mean, it would have been a worse situation than when he stayed in Cleveland. So, I mean, they really, they lucked out there big time. Well, and ultimately, yeah. one of the reasons that those teams ended up succeeding was because Chris Bosh transformed himself and became right. a center and became a stretch guy and became so much better defensively. I don't think Amari Sotomayor, it was ever, that was never going to happen for him. You know, I don't, I don't think, I don't think one, they would have been able to sell him on that. And two, I, I don't know if he had it in him as a basketball player, even if he would have bought in. Yeah, I kind of think the two biggest discrepancies or the two biggest areas where Bosch just had a massive edge was defense and then willingness to be the third fiddle. Yeah, kind of. I mean, I don't know if he is quite in the Clay Thompson zone, but I mean, this is this has been hashed out by by everybody. I mean, he deserves a ton of credit for accepting that the way that he did. Well, yeah, I mean, he, he was just such a good defender, too. I think people kind of forget about that. Mm hmm. All right, let's empty out the notes. What else do you guys have? Anything from this game that we haven't touched on yet? I emptied mine out. I don't know. Did we actually talk about like Steve Nash in this game? Like a lot? <laughs> not really. No, that was one of the things <laughs> that I, I have in my notes. We really have not discussed Steve Nash, two-time MVP at all. You know, I, I don't know how much there is to say that hasn't been said already, but like his his you know imprint on the game and just like how clearly you know he was as like the most dynamic offensive player on the court as far as like him being able to get his own shot, him creating shots for other players, like, you know, his patience as a point guard, like, you know, running pick and rolls and then driving the basket. And if the shot's not there, he either, you know, goes he that the like Nash cut where he goes under the under the rim or he gets a big switched onto him and he just keeps backing the big up with like dribble moves and then just shoots like an open mid ranger, which he was just hitting constantly. Like he he hit like four mid rangers over Kwame Brown, who was just like who didn't know what to do against Nash and 
Um, Nash's complete control of this game offensively was like in was insane. Um, and it was, yeah, you could you could see why he won MVP for sure. Yeah, I mean the and the fact that he could he could really go left or right. And, yeah. Uh, yeah, there just wasn't. I mean, you could have overwhelmed him with uh, an athletic lockdown defensive wing or something like that um, if you really wanted to shut him down. But what um, you know, I, th- I think that just would have opened things up so much for everyone else. Um, I remember when the the Spurs like the, there are just so many times the the Suns got super close to get into the finals and just couldn't, couldn't do it. Uh, the Spurs one time, one of the better Suns teams, I can't remember what year it was, uh, but it was the year where Amari basically averaged like 40 points in the series against the Spurs. And it was just because all the Spurs wanted to do in that series was just make the other guys beat them and like just live with Amari going off at the expense of really shutting down Nash and, and that, they ended up winning that series with that strategy. Um, it, I mean, he, he was smaller and not as quick as Steph Curry. So, like, I, I still don't think there we know for sure whether a Steve Nash-led team could have won the finals against a traditional finals-caliber opponent uh, because there, it is just a lot tougher to kind of make that work when you're that small and that uh, limited physically. But... I mean, he was definitely the best player ever uh, at his measurements and athleticism. Yeah, I think that's a great summation, James. And I, I know Steve Nash holds a, a special place in your heart that maybe he does it for mine. But he was incredible in this game. And again, 32, 13 of 13 at the line uh, for the series. He averaged 23 a game. So we, we got to see a little bit more of, a, of an aggressive Steve Nash. You know, we talked at the top about him winning these MVPs, averaging 17, 18 points a game. In the playoffs, he was playing closer to 40 minutes. So we, we kind of got to see, you know, what he would have been, you know, if he was playing that same workload as some of these other guys. And and obviously he measured up. I thought that Giannis comp you had was great earlier in the pod uh, where, I mean, they were blowing out enough teams. And like, like if you're a point guard that sort of plays the way Steve Nash does, you're, you're not going to just go out against, like the Bobcats and try to hang 30 on them, you know, like right. you're, you're going to be very happy to just blow them out and get your teammates involved. So, um, well, I, I think too, I mean, he, at this point in his career and in this game, he leaves the game right at the start of the fourth quarter and goes back to the locker room uh, to get his back worked on. You know, like, I, I think he was fully complicit in this, you know, like I, I don't think the Suns had to like pin him to the bench. You know, I, I think if they were up 15 to start a fourth quarter, he was more than happy to not play the rest of the way. Like he was, he was kind of load managing himself even at this point yeah. in his career. Yep. All right. So all I have left in my notes are uh, we, we, we talked about this on the last rewatch as well, but looking at the assistant coaches in this game, three future head coaches on the bench between these two teams, we got Brian Shaw and Kurt Rambis on the bench for the Lakers <laughs> and Alvin Gentry, the lead assistant in Phoenix. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And then, well, and a and a future general manager was playing in uh, James Jones. Yeah, um, 
But, but Brian Shaw, Kurt Rambis, uh, really, really carrying on that Phil Jackson coaching legacy. Yep. <laughs> People forget, like, Brian Shaw was, he was only a head coach for one year, right? And it went so badly in Denver yeah. that he's, yeah. he's never, I haven't even heard him as, like, a serious contender for any job since. No. Kind of the, the Lindsey Hunter treatment. Yeah. There, this isn't exactly relevant to this specific game, but in, in seven seconds or less, there's a great note about Alvin Gentry. Uh, earlier in this season, he, he landed himself in hot water uh, because he, he said to a reporter on the record when asked about Michael Olawakandi, he called him a pussy. And the, it, was, it was an interview with the same guy who wrote the book. And he said, uh, Jack McCallum said that he, he got a call from the league uh, and somebody from the league office said, quote, Publicly, we deplore the use of such language to describe one of our players. Privately, we agree with the characterization. <laughs> Can you imagine something like that coming out today? Right, exactly. I know it would like I think he would he would have to like be suspended for a couple of games, right? If if an assistant coach on the record called a player a pussy in 2020. Yeah. There would be a, there would be a, a huge deal. There would be a full pussygate investigation. <laughs> Oh man! But then on the record, Adam Silver is like, "Yeah, he right though." Yeah, right, exactly. And then there, there's another note where they played, you know, they played in Minnesota for the first time that year, and the authors like Alvin Gentry was did not want to go out there. He just he thought it was going to be just a big deal, and fans would be pissed at him. And then it turned out that Olo Candy had a minor injury and didn't play that game, and <laughs> like multiple fans were telling him like, "You're right, he is a pussy." <laughs> Uh, so yeah, this is this has kind of been one long promo for that book, but there are a lot of really really funny notes like that in there. Uh, and my last note, which I forgot to to mention when we were talking about the setup to this game, but if you go back and watch the Kobe shot in Game Four to to win that game, there's a jump ball with six seconds left at center court, and it's just kind of like a scatter. You know, the ball gets tipped towards the sideline. Kobe goes and gets it, and so he picks it up with like four seconds left, and the Lakers are down one. And Hubie Brown, who's doing color on the game, just like very bluntly remarks, got to get a shot here. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, of course, Kobe does get a shot and, and make it. So that, that's all I have. I've, I've emptied out my entire clip. I think I have as well. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. 
the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.